We're going to continue in the book of 1 Corinthians, where we've been in most of this month, uh, but now in chapter 10, starting at verse 14 through verse 23. And so we'll have that on the screen, but if you want a moment to, to find that, uh, wherever, however you want to access, <laughs> access your, your Bible, 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 14. From God's word we read. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Well, so far through the month of May, we've been making some stops at various points in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And this was likely the second letter written to the church in Corinth by the Apostle Paul. And Paul would write these letters both in response to questions that he received from that church, but also because people he trusted in that church would write to him and tell him some things that were going on, sometimes some troubling things, and he would respond to that as well. So a lot of these answers and responses ended up dealing with sticky situations plaguing that church. And Corinth was not the easiest place to figure out how to be a Christian. It was a notoriously greedy and sexually immoral city where the Jesus-following way of life would seem especially strange to everyone else. Not that it wasn't strange anywhere you were in the Roman Empire, but Corinth, it seemed maybe that much harder. And it was not an easy place for Christians to figure out how they were going to form this new kind of spiritual community either, because the Corinthian Christians were very diverse. They were Jews and, and Greeks and rich and poor and men and women trying to figure out how, as a community, they would put Jesus first with their very different ideas and priorities and backgrounds, which often threatened to pull them apart. So far in this series, we've seen examples of these challenges. There were factions forming over which leader everyone liked best. There was the question of what to do with a man who was hooking up with his mother-in-law. And last week, Erica walked us through this issue they had with meat sacrifice to idols and whether or not it was okay to go down to the meat market and pick up some meat that had been used in the temple sacrifice and you know, bring that home. Because, you know, that meat was at a discount, and you know, I found that Christians are usually very frugal, so that was, you know, that was very tempting. So today, we're still in the section of this letter that's dealing with idolatry, but there's some new elements from where we were last week. And at first, it might seem a little difficult to see the relevance from what we're, the Corinthians were dealing with to what we face in our lives today. But I think once we recognize the principles at work here, there's actually a lot that absolutely matters in our day-to-day -day lives if we're seeking to be followers of Jesus who resemble our Savior. So let's, let's dig into 1 Corinthians 10 a bit here. 
I did not read the entire chapter earlier because I don't think people retain it if you read too much at once, but I'm going to back up a little to where this chapter began because Paul starts off by giving his readers a little lesson from Jewish history about the way that a community can fall away from God and suffer some consequences because he takes them all the way back to the Exodus and he reminds them how the Hebrew people in the wilderness, they ate and they drank all the water that, and the food that God provided them. They were totally reliant on him and he met their needs and yet, they would still turn to idols. They still made a golden calf when Moses didn't come back quickly enough off the mountain one day. They disobeyed God, sinning sexually and were punished. And when they grumbled against God long enough and hard enough, they were even afflicted by, by snakes. All kinds of you know, unfortunate things happening in the desert. And why does Paul bring this up? He says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Or to put it another way, Corinthians, don't get cocky, right? You think you're doing everything you're supposed to do. You've been baptized. You gather and you eat together. You take the Lord's Supper. You do the religious Christian things. That's good, but not a guarantee of faithfulness. The Israelites got their baptism passing through the Red Sea. They received bread from heaven, and they still fell into temptation that brought ruin on themselves. God can help you endure temptation, but not if you're so prideful that you don't understand that there are temptations you have to watch out for. And that's the lead-in to verse 14, where I began today's reading. So having reminded them of how damaging this can be, Paul tells them, flee from idolatry. And that's where Paul places the root of all this unfaithfulness and ruin in idolatry. The Israelites made and worshipped a literal gold idol at one point, but their evil behavior in other ways was also connected to idolatry because we can make idols out of many, many things. The grumbling of the Israelites in the desert was inspired by their own idols of security and nostalgia. The people yearned for some of the good they used to have. They feared that they would be abandoned rather than trusting God with their future. And so the idolatry being addressed in today's passage is an extension of that issue in 1 Corinthians 8, where they're buying the meat in the marketplace, they're using uh, the stuff that had been used in pagan sacrifices and eating that. And they figured, since the gods in question were not real, that there was nothing actually different about this meat versus any other meat. And Paul agrees with them. He says, that's correct, that's the right knowledge. But you should still abstain from this meat if eating it around other Christians is going to negatively impact them. But the issue in chapter 10 goes a step further, because there are some Christians in Corinth, it seems, who are so confident in their faith, who believe that I can, you know, I can do anything and it won't affect me because I'm such a strong Christian, that they were actually going to the pagan temples where the sacrifices were happening alongside the pagan worshipers and, and fully participating in what was going on there. Even you know, eating that meat that had just been sacrificed to the idol in front of them to one of these gods alongside the, the pagan worshipers there. And that crossed a line, right? If you eat discount meat you bought at the marketplace yesterday, um, you know, that, that's dinner. That's okay. Joining the temple ceremony and eating the meat right off the idol's altar, that, that's worship. And Paul uses the Lord's Supper to illustrate this. He says, when a follower of Jesus takes the bread and the cup at the Lord's table, we believe that they are they are communing with Jesus through that act. That's why we call it communion. But who are you communing with if you sit and partake at the idol's table is the question here. He says, on the one hand, technically nothing, nobody. 
because idols are nothing. But where does worship go that isn't directed to God? And the answer here is demons. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Worship always goes somewhere. And if it doesn't go to God, where is it going? From a, for a Christian to participate in the trappings of this idol worship, for one thing, it suggests an acceptance of that God. And that's not good for the church's public witness. It's certainly confusing to other believers or just regular people who see that. How can this person be a Christian in doing this? But the more important thing that Paul is focused on here is that this really just invites temptation for no good reason. Some Corinthian Christians felt that they could get away with that and not be affected by participating in this. But was that really true? Or was that just something they were telling themselves? Because Paul thought they were foolishly provoking God. He says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Right? Because there were things Jesus wouldn't do. And then Paul concludes this chapter by asking the Corinthians to think about the good of others and not just their own good. Yes, in Christ, they have the freedom to do all kinds of things without being constrained by all kinds of religious rules or superstitions. That's a good thing about being a Christian. But just because you can do all kinds of things doesn't mean those things are good or helpful or wise. Anyone who exercises their freedom without regard for how it affects the people around them is not honoring God, is not living out true faith in Jesus Christ. And so the final thought in this chapter is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause trouble, anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that the many may be saved. So I'm going to summarize that briefly before I move on to what that might mean for us today. Right? Christians enjoy a great deal of spiritual freedom. We don't operate with a rule book that tells us exactly what we can and cannot do in every possible situation. And there are lots of ways that a person can walk through this world as a follower of Jesus. It does not have to look the same for everybody. But we are called to use this freedom for the good of others, not simply to please ourselves. And so we shouldn't get complacent, thinking that, well, we have it all together and our faith is strong enough that we can just get away with whatever we feel like doing. Because that is an attitude that can quickly lead to idolatry or the weakening or undoing of our faith. Because all of our choices affect us for good or for ill. All right, so now for the challenging part where I try to bridge the gap from ancient Corinth to modern-day Halifax here. Because the trouble with talking about idolatry is, as an issue, uh, to talk about how, what it means today is that people think about biblical examples that are very clear-cut, right? If you put up an Asherah pole in your front yard, or if you start worshiping at the Temple of Artemis, it's pretty obvious that you have compromised your faith in God, right? But nobody does these things today. And so the Bible comes to us from a world where the Christians were surrounded by people who put stock in all kinds of different deities. Christians were strange because they denied that all these other gods were real, were anything. People actually called the early Christians atheists because they did not believe in all the normal gods that everyone believed in. But now Christians are strange for a different reason. Now we're strange because we continue to believe in our God while living in a culture that's mostly unsure or indifferent if there is a God or gods at all. 
But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that our culture is in any way less religious or that idolatry is less of a temptation today because that's not the case at all. There are always idols around us. Because idolatry is, is really just the failure to direct our worship where it belongs, to, to God. Idols are any lesser things that we offer our worship to instead. And human beings are worshipers. There is no way around it. We have needs and desires, and they express themselves in pursuing something that becomes the driving force in our lives. And idols, really, they tell a competing story about what matters. And if we think about the Christian story, there are lots of ways to tell the Christian story, but one way to tell the Christian story is to say that our Creator God wants to restore us to a right relationship with Him and each other. Right? That we can be spiritually changed and begin a new kind of life through belief in Jesus Christ. And then as followers of Jesus, we put Him first in all things. We adopt the values of the kingdom of God. Or maybe to put it an even shorter way, our lives become about loving God loving each other in the church, and loving the world as the church. And there are blessings of Christian maturity. It's an abiding trust in God that brings peace, which it doesn't depend on all our circumstances and our successes, as well as this wisdom to live well that we draw from the Bible and from the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of our, our story and our hope. But what are the idols in our culture with competing stories? And I think perhaps the most important idol of all is the idol of self, where we replace God with, frankly, ourselves. And this idol story is very simple. It's all about me. I determine everything about my identity and my purpose. I am the only judge of what is good and right for me. I get to define reality for myself, and it is wrong of anyone else to constrain me. And, of course, social media has become an altar or a great deal of self-worship as people present a certain image of themselves and fire their every opinion back and forth and ask, what has this idol given us? And as far as I can tell, it has given us a great deal of confusion and immense psychological pressure. We tell kids they can be anything. It's up to them to invent who they are from scratch, and then we'll give them smartphones to bombard them with an impossible number of unrealistic and unhealthy options to choose from. The mental health of children and youth is in frightening decline, and this idol is part of the reason. Not the only reason, but it's in there. There's also, of course, the idol of materialism, which has always been with us, but it's alive and well today, and it's, it's fueled even more by our technology. We absorb massive amounts of advertising every single day, designed not only to guide us toward purchasing a particular product, but also serving as a reminder that we're not just people, we're not just citizens, we are consumers, right? And so the story of materialism is the myth of the good life. It's the one where you get the education and then the job and then married with a huge expensive wedding and then the house once you've paid off enough of the wedding and then you get the two kids which are proof that you, have, you are on track in your success, right? If you get that far, you know, you did it, you did it right, you succeeded, and if you juggle all of this long enough and you keep up with your peers, then that's where, that's where fulfillment is. It's at the end of that particular rainbow. And as a culture, we clearly believe this, right? Each generation works more hours than the last, spends more time with their kids than the last, and I believe is more exhausted than the last as they pursue it. There are many, of course, other idols that influence us in one way or another as we journey through our lives in this world, but we don't see them because we're immersed in them. 
We're used to them. We're not really aware when they're doing us harm. There's an expression in chemistry that says that toxicity is in the dose. Right? It's in the toxicity is in the dose because enough of any substance will kill you. You can die by drinking too much water all at once. But our bodies can endure at least a little bit of almost anything. See, the, the well water at my house has lead and arsenic and uranium in it. These are all toxic in fairly small amounts. Fortunately for me, they're present in my water at much lower concentrations than you know, any smart scientist at the government think is going to be a problem. And so you know, it meets guidelines. But it's still important that we test that from time to time. In fact, I'm probably overdue to do that because if conditions change, if some of these things become present in much larger amounts, then you know, I can start to slowly poison myself just by drinking my own water at home day after day. And, of course, I won't develop health problems right away. It'll come slowly over time. And I may not even realize that's why. I might think it's for another reason or it's just bad luck without even knowing that it was preventable. And so idolatry is very similar. Right? Buy a little meat at the market that was used in temple sacrifices. That's okay. Okay, it's a little bit connected to the pagan gods, but that's not toxic to the faith of someone who understands those gods aren't real. Just don't eat it around someone who has a much lower tolerance than you so you don't poison them. That's kind of the lesson of last week. But participating in the pagan worship where the meat is, is sacrificed? No, says Paul. That is, that is too high a dose. You may not believe it's affecting you, but you don't know that. You don't know what it will do to you to get comfortable being in that environment, worshiping, you know, alongside these worshipers of something other than Jesus. You don't know how it affects you simply by the fact that you're investing your time in this and not in something that would build up your faith. And the very fact that you don't think that your faith won't be poisoned suggests that there is a pride problem here, that you've made an idol out of your own strength or your own ability, and that again is the idol of self at work. People worship idols all the time thinking they can handle a little bit of toxicity. Brutal substance abuse problems can start with, well, I can handle this much alcohol or, or drug use. It's, it's not going to be a problem. Sexual dysfunction, damaged relationships, broken marriages can grow out of, well, I mean, a little bit of pornography is not that big a deal. Everyone does it. And, you know, everybody gossips, what's the big deal, turns into, I feel so alone. Where are my friends when I need them? There are plenty of things that seem small while they are building up to our undoing. And it isn't that God does not forgive when we bring these things to Him, but that forgiveness does not undo the consequences, doesn't remove the toxins from us altogether. They will still impact our lives in a lot of different ways. And these things bring separation from God as well if we do not you know, bring them to Him to deal with and to forgive and to help us with those things. Because when we do these things, we're, ask, we're basically announcing that we don't trust God with our well-being or our happiness or our immediate or future needs. So I'll take it on myself to find the fulfillment I'm looking for using what the world has to offer. Right? No thanks, God. I'll find an idol to give me what I'm looking for. And that is the opposite of faith. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. But the thing is, idolatry is even more subtle than this. Because the toxic elements of my well water, they're just bad. Like there's, you're always better off avoiding them. Zero is the right amount of all of those things. But 
Many of you know what it's like to be on a medication that has to be balanced just right. right? The medication itself is good and it is helpful to you if you get just enough. But if you get too little or too much, well, then you can very quickly find yourself in the hospital or even in the morgue. Most things that become idols are perfectly good things if they are kept in their proper place. The idolatry happens when we start to put them where God belongs. Right? Marriage is a good thing. Did you know it can become an idol? Actually, in a couple of ways it can become an idol. One way is that sometimes the church errs in holding up marriage as the ideal that makes other people feel like second-class citizens. And that's not right. The Bible does not do that. It's not what Jesus models. It's not what Paul teaches. And so we have to remember to affirm all the different you know, states we find ourselves in to affirm singleness and everybody's place in our community. But another way that marriage can be an idol is that if you ignore or reject God, your deepest emotional and spiritual needs don't just disappear. Right? You still have those needs. And so what then happens is people will often rely on their spouse to try to fulfill all of that, all that that they should have been drawing on God for. And so that's, that's putting too much on one person. One person cannot do that for you. Your relationship with Christ, when you have one, helps bring out the best in other relationships. The absence of one can strain those relationships that were never meant to replace God's role in your life. Children can be an idol. Children are a wonderful gift, but when you expect them to fulfill you by performing in a certain way, or if you let their desires dictate everything your family does, or if, if you focus on them so much that you lack other relationships and interests altogether, then you've moved them out of their proper place in your life. Entertainment can be an idol. And again, Idols start often as good things. Hobbies and TV and movies and video games and sports and other things that help us to rest and to play, these are good. We need those things. We were created for, the, for that. But it's not good if we let them starve us of the time that we ought to be offering God and the people around us. I don't think it's good that there are people today that I run into all the time who have no burning passions or major interests apart from that they very closely follow certain TV shows and movies. Like that's Try to get them to talk about anything else. They've got nothing else going on. And it's not good if we continually choose forms of media that start to incline us toward violence or prejudice or that normalize other kinds of sins. The toxicity is in the dose. Politics can be an idol. It's good for Christians to be aware and engaged politically because that's a very important tool that can be used to pursue the common good. But, man, these past five or six years, I've seen... Politics become an obsession to so many Christians who have made idols out of a particular politician or party or issue. They think that every political battle is this life or death struggle, and they're willing to throw away truth and virtue into the nearest dumpster for the chance at a victory in whatever it is, and that's idolatry. And I could go on, but I imagine that you're about ready for me to stop listing all the idols in the world. But ultimately, this brings us back to this question, this question of, do we really want to put Jesus first, right? Is he going to be Lord over my life or not? Each day, the Corinthian Christians would be asked to honor other gods, and they had to make this costly choice to refuse and to stay faithful to Jesus, who they believed had died for them, had rescued them from slavery to sin, had given them the gift of eternal life. And each day, we are asked to make that choice too, 
Will we trade Jesus who cares for us for idols that only make promises they can't keep? Will we worship the idol of self and put our own desires ahead of following Jesus, being obedient to what he teaches us? Will we replace God with things and the money that buys them? Will we put family or entertainment or politics in the driver's seat or commit ourselves again and again to ensuring that Jesus leads in our life and all the rest follows? Or to put it more simply, will we be Christians or will we be pagans? Will we have one God or many? Dear friends, flee from idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You know, a generation or two ago, it was more common to try to keep idols at a distance by having a lot more religious rules, right? Some of you grew up in this. Like, no movies or shopping on Sunday for certain, right? No, no regular playing cards allowed in my grandparents' house. That was too close to gambling. No Harry Potter books still in many Christian households today. Uh, and some of these seem silly to me, right? My father wasn't allowed to own a leather jacket growing up because that, that, was, that meant you were in a gang, so you couldn't have one of those. But with each year that goes by, I'm going to face new questions about what on earth are the right boundaries, especially for my own children, to help them navigate today's world, which has gotten so much more complicated than it was even 10 or 20 years ago. But for those of us who are all grown up, we tend not to like boundaries, right? We agree with Paul who says, I have the right to anything. And that's true, as long as we don't forget that not everything is beneficial or constructive. So how should you judge your habits, your practices, the way you spend your time and your money, the other things that belong under Jesus' lordship if we are to free ourselves from idolatry? And really, it's the end of this chapter that gives us a good answer, where Paul says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. The right questions to ask are not, am I allowed to do this? Or can I get away with this? The questions to ask are, does this bring glory to God? Or is this good for the people around me? Those are the questions to bring into our thoughts and our prayers if we really do want to be followers of Jesus instead of worshipers of some lesser thing. And I pray we will because Jesus is the only one we can worship who cares for us, the one who has sacrificed for us, the one who has proven through his death and resurrection that our future is secure when we belong to him. So let me offer prayer to him as we conclude. Lord Jesus, maybe it would be better if our idols were obvious if we walked out the door and we were asked if we would worship some golden statue or pledge our loyalty to some other deity, at least we would understand the choice that we were making. But sometimes we have a hard time seeing the choices that we are making today. A little bit of this is good, but how much is, is right? How much should I associate myself with this? Where do I place boundaries that are healthy for me? Because I have some freedom to decide this. I don't have to live my life like everyone else. You've given me that freedom. And your Holy Spirit strengthens me and empowers me and helps me to see what I need to see. But God, having put all this in our hands is a big responsibility. 
And so I pray that you would help us. I pray that through your spirit, you would reveal to us if there are places in our life where we are putting things ahead of you, where we are letting that idol of self, of materialism, or if we are letting the good things in life take, take over things, that take over your role in it. Lord Jesus, help us to be discerning people who can look at what we're up to in our lives, who can sense that the way we're feeling is caused by choices we've made, who can take that responsibility and say, I have to make wise choices that bring glory to God and good to those around me. Because if I just drift my way through life, then the world and its idols are going to make those choices for me. And then what state will I find myself in? And so, God, to each one here, only you on an individual level can show them exactly how they should live, what is healthiest for them, how you intend for them to thrive in this world. And I pray that you would. I pray that you would give them a positive vision for who they can be. I pray that you would show them those things which wound and tear down. I pray that you would help them to sense if there is something toxic that is building up because of the way that they spend their time or their money or set their priorities so that we can be what you came to this world to help us be, fully human, fully alive, living abundantly. May it be so, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.